Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. This is God's word, and it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem, to the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, everyone say one accord, were devoting themselves to what? To prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Let's pray together. God, we invite you into this moment. We recognize Jesus when two or more are gathered in your name, you're here among us. We recognize that you inhabit the praises of your people, and we've done that this morning. We recognize that your word is living and powerful, and as we read it this morning, I pray that by your spirit, you would open up our hearts and our our minds to you. Father, I pray for those in this room that are in need of encouragement, that you would encourage them. I pray for those that are in need of comfort, that you would comfort them. I pray for those that are in need of direction, that you would direct them. I pray for those that may not know you personally, that Jesus today, you would continue to peel back the layers of their heart and you would reveal yourself to them. Jesus, we invite you here. Would you have your way? In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, last Thanksgiving Eve service, I had the brilliant idea and plan to bring my family to the service. And afterwards, we were going to pile up into the car and take a four and a half hour drive north to my hometown of Lompoc for Thanksgiving Day. Now, if you know about our Thanksgiving Eve service, you know that's a pretty epic service. Goes pretty late, right? Like we're leaving like 9 p.m., maybe 9.30 p.m. And so we get our two kids. My daughter's three at the time. My son's one at the time. We pile them into the car. I thought it was brilliant. Like bring them to church. They'll get just tired out, right? Like they'll be exhausted. They'll get in the car and they'll just knock out. They'll be asleep. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Oh, no way. We get in the car. I tell my daughter. She's real sweet. She's so smart, that girl. I told her, hey, we're going to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house. It's going to take a long time, honey. You've got to take it. You've got to go night-night. We've got to drive up there. Well, we didn't arrive at, to my parents' house until about 12.30. I think it was closer to 1 a.m. in the morning. And she did not sleep the entire way. No, she did not want to wait to get to Grandma and Grandpa's house. She was so excited. So she's awake the entire time, crying hysterically throughout the drive because she's so ready to get out. And she was asking that dreaded question every parent knows on a car ride Are you Are you there yet? That was her question every single 10 minutes. The title of our message this morning is Are We There Yet? Because the reality is, is we might look at that story or we consider for a moment our kids and how they don't like to wait. The reality is, is none of us like to wait. We don't like to wait. We don't like to wait in the line of the DMV, do we? We don't like to wait in traffic, do we? A lot of us, we go out to eat and we're like, why isn't the server coming by our table? We don't like to wait for anyone. We're like, where's our food? We are people that do not like to wait. Believe me, it's not just kids. We have a problem. We do not like waiting. But waiting is a common part of life, is it not? We have to wait all the time. But this is the thing. It's something that I never choose. I don't choose to wait. I don't choose to wait in line. I don't choose to wait in traffic. I never choose to wait. No, if it was up to me, I would skip all of that and get to where I'm going. We don't like to wait. 
Yet it's interesting as we consider Acts chapter 1 this morning, that the last command of Jesus before his ascension that we looked at last week, his last command to the disciples was to To wait. It's there in our text in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. He says to wait for the promise of the Father. Luke 24, he says to wait until the power from on high. You're endued with the power from on high. The last command of Jesus to the disciples was to wait. Now, Jesus had many commands to them throughout the gospel, throughout the ministries, the gospel accounts. He he commanded them to go. He commanded them to preach. He commanded them to heal. He commanded them to follow him. But it's interesting to note, he had never, ever, 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 ever commanded them to wait until this very moment. I mean, just put yourselves in the disciples' shoes for a second. Like, they must have been so excited. Imagine what they'd gone through in the last 40 days. 40 days prior to this event. I mean, 42 days, 43 days, Jesus was crucified. And I mean, it was just horrid for the disciples. The leader who they followed, they put all the cards in the one basket. Now he's gone. He's buried in a grave. What? They go through what we call silent Saturday. Just nothing. Just disappointment, despair. But then, boom, the empty tomb. He's resurrected. He's alive. And hope filled the air. And they were excited. And Jesus appears to over 500 eyewitnesses. And you could imagine the disciples were pumped. They were ready to get the ball rolling. In fact, we know, according to our text here in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, that they were still under the impression that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. They were under the impression that Jesus was going to throw out the Roman Empire and restore everything. They were ready to to get the movement going. Like, come on, Jesus, you're alive. You've conquered sin, you've conquered death. But then he dramatically ascends into heaven and he tells them to wait. To wait. See, we don't like to wait, but that's exactly what Jesus commands them to do, is to wait. To wait for the power from on high. This morning, I have a question for you. Have you ever considered that God is calling you to wait? Have you ever thought about it before? Have you you ever thought that maybe, just maybe, God is asking you to wait? Or maybe a better question, are you tired of waiting? Are you tired of waiting? You had that encounter with Jesus and you dramatically changed your life. And you're given these promises of abundant life and these different personal promises that you may feel like God had spoken to you. But then you're just waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And oftentimes we can get weary in the waiting. Have you ever considered that Jesus may just be asking you to wait? And maybe you know that. Have you grown tired of waiting? Well, before we break down into our text this morning, I want us to zoom out for a moment and look at the principle of waiting throughout the entirety of the Bible. In fact, as we zoom out, we're going to see that there was a lot of waiting in the scriptures. There's going to be a a slide that pops up on the screen. We're going to see all these different characters that had to wait. Are you ready? Noah waited 120 years for the promise of the flood. Abraham waited 25 years for God's promise of a son. 
Jacob waited 14 years for Rachel. Joseph waited over 20 years before his promised dream came true. Moses waited 40 years in the wilderness before he led the Israelites. Hannah prayed and waited for a child. Rebecca waited 20 years suffering infertility for her child. David spent 15 years in waiting to become king. Paul spent 14 years waiting for his public ministry to begin. And Jesus spent 30 years in waiting for his public ministry to begin. The Bible's full of a lot of waiting. In fact, you could say that the entire Old Testament is chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of waiting. Thousands and thousands of years of waiting. I mean, really, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You remember that verse? We call it the Proto-Evangelion, the first promise of a Messiah. Remember what happens? The fall enters into the picture, and then God promises to Adam and Eve. He says that there would be a seed that would come from the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And for thousands of years, they just had to wait and wait and wait for the Messiah. The Old Testament is an entire book or collection of books, a library of books about waiting. The Bible has has a lot to say about waiting, but the thing is, we hate to wait. You see, the principle really that we see throughout the Bible is this, that often there is a period of waiting between the giving of a promise and the fulfillment of the promise. God gives the promise, but then years and years and years and years and years go by before the fulfillment of that promise, and that in between is what we call waiting. But the problem is we do not like to wait. We don't like to wait for our test results to come in. We don't like to wait for the prodigal to come home. We don't like to wait for breakthrough. We want it now. Well, that's just honest. It's hard to wait. I don't want to downplay what it feels like to wait. Oftentimes it can be met with suffering. Oftentimes it can be met with doubt. Oftentimes it can be met with difficulty. But we got to just recognize for a moment that there are moments where God asks us to wait and we don't like it. Do you remember the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? There's a great scene in there really about the opposite of waiting that I think is a great picture for all of us. It's the character Veruca Salt. Do you remember her? She's kind of a stinker, all right? She doesn't have the best attitude. And they go into this one room in in the chocolate factory and there's the geese and they're laying golden eggs. And man, she goes, Daddy, I want that now. And she goes, oh, he goes, okay, honey. And he pulls out his checkbook and he says, Wonka, how much? And Wonka goes, it's not for sale. And then she just goes out. She breaks into this classic kids like song, you know, for like two, three minutes. And she says, I want this and 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 I want this. And then it all dramatically comes to this moment, the last line of her song. In fact, it's the last line that we hear of Ruka Salt for, well, I guess she pops up later in the movie. But the last line, she says this. I want it now. And then the floor end of her goes away and she goes down a garbage chute into a furnace. Willy Wonka lets us all know that the furnace isn't working. But you get the picture. Now we might laugh and say, man, our kids are a lot like that. Like our kids, they don't, they don't like to wait. My son this morning, I'm, I'm trying to get ready. I'm praying over the text and I'm trying to spend time with Jesus and my kids. They wake up at 5.15 every morning, pray for me. Pray that they sleep in a little bit. Like, Lord, we pray right now. Um, 
No, but it's seriously, it's hard. And so I'm like, I'm just trying to like study over the text and just trying to have a, a quiet moment for a moment. And then they wake up and he's like, instantly, you know, I put on the TV. Don't judge me. I put it on for a second. I'm trying to have my Jesus time. All right. So I put on the TV. And so until he's like, daddy, I want a bar. I want a bar. I want a bar. I want a bar. I'm like, honey, hold on, hold on. Daddy's going to make you breakfast. It's going to be better than a bar. I'm going to make you some food. Just wait. Just asking consistently, consistently. He doesn't want to wait. And we might look at Veruca Salt, we may look at my, my children and say, man, they don't know how to wait. But the reality is we don't like to wait either. We don't like to wait. It's not just a kid problem, it's all of our problems. We don't like to wait. And in fact, we're actually kind of like Veruca Salt's dad. You see, he tried to pull out his checkbook and say, hey, Willy Wonka, how much? I don't want to wait. I want that now. She wants that now. He'll pull out his checkbook and say, how much does it cost? And we actually can do the same thing with God. Have you ever realized it? Those that have the ability, they actually do write a large check and drop it in the offering box. And they say, God, look how much I gave to you. I want that promise now. The rest of us, we don't have those financial means. And so what do we do? We give our lives. We give our bodies to the church. We're serving here and we're serving there and we're serving here. And we're just like, man, God, look how much I'm doing for you. We're praying and we're seeking. We're opening our scripture. We're doing Bible memory verses. And we get in this mindset like, God, look at all that I'm doing for you. I need that promise now the reality is we actually try to buy off God sometimes because we don't like to wait. But waiting is exactly what the disciples were asked to do. Waiting is something that is common to all of us. Now, again, I don't want to downplay the reality that waiting can be difficult. But I think at the heart of the problem of the reason why we don't like to wait is because waiting reminds us that we are not in control. We're waiting in line at DMV. Are you in control? I'm not. We're in traffic. If it was up to me, I would zoom around everybody. We're not in control. Waiting can be hard because we have to just sit there and wait on and wait for other people. It can be difficult because we're not in control. And so we're not in control as we wait for the diagnosis. We have no control over the prodigal's wayward heart. We have no control over the breakthrough. Waiting can become difficult. There's good news. And the good news is this, whenever God calls his people to wait, we are to wait on him. Whenever God calls us to wait, we are to wait on him. See, the reality is that people have to wait for me all the time. Listen, if you text me, I'm a terrible texter, okay? If you call me, you send me an email, I'll respond. But if you text me, it's really difficult. People have to wait on me all the time. And oftentimes, this is the thing, I forget. I forget to get back to people. I forget that my wife asked me to move that one piece of furniture. I forget. I forget to take out the trash every once in a while. I forget. And so other people are waiting on me. But this is the beauty with our God. Whenever he calls us to wait, we are to wait on him and he never forgets. His name is faithful and true. He is not only the promise giver, we sing it all the time, he's the promise keeper. This is who our God is. 
So when we are called to wait on him, he is faithful to complete the good work in which he promised. He's faithful to come through. He is faithful because that is who he is. You know the verse there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. You see, sometimes God calls us to wait. It reminds us that we're not in control. But the beauty is, is that he's in control. The beauty is, is that he holds all things together. The beauty is, is that he is faithful to meet every promise that he gives. This is who our God is. You following? So we've zoomed out for a moment to consider the principle of waiting. That whether we like it or not, there are times when God calls us to wait. Even if we don't like it, he calls us to wait. And it reminds us that he's in control. And in our waiting, we're not waiting for anyone else. We're waiting on him. Now we're going to zoom back into our text, though, to look at what it looks like to wait. Here in Acts chapter 1, we're actually given this account. They're called to wait and they do just that. We're going to look at the practice of their waiting. The practice of their waiting. Before we break down this text, I want to make these few comments. First of all, that waiting is never passive. It is always active. We're not called to just passively wait around. Everything that we're going to see here is that they were actively waiting on their God. But there's something else that's really important and really critical to note here about Acts chapter 1. The waiting that we see of the disciples here is different than the waiting of all the people that had to wait in the Old Testament. Now follow with me. Right before God calls them, Jesus asks them to wait. He did this. John chapter 20 verse 22. We looked at it last week. He breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, we went over this last week. There's three relationships that we can have with the Holy Spirit. He's not a force. He's not a power. He is God. The first relationship is that the Holy Spirit is with us, convicting us of sin and righteousness. Then the Holy Spirit is in us. And then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit upon us. Well, at this point, as Jesus asked them to wait, he actually breathed on them and the Spirit of God came within them. Therefore, this is our first model in all of Scripture of Spirit-led waiting. Consider that for a moment. All the promises to Abraham, to Noah, to Joseph, to David, the Spirit of God did not dwell inside of them. So the moment that God appeared, what we call theophanies, and God appeared to them and he gave them a promise, that was like the last time they saw him. They had like no interaction whatsoever. It was like totally in faith, like, man, God said 15 years ago that we were going to have a kid, Sarah, and she just laughs at him. It was like there was no indwelling of the Holy Spirit to just as that reminder, but now things have changed. The Holy Spirit has been breathed into them. They've received the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when Jesus calls the disciples to wait, this is the first model that we have of Spirit-led waiting, which is super cool. So we're going to look at this model. First, we've talked about sometimes there's times when God calls us to wait. So what is it to look like? Well, here we have some answers. Let's read verses 12 to 14 again. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, 
they went up to the upper room. Everyone say upper room. Where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now what's interesting to know is that list of the 11 apostles, because Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus, this list of the 11 apostles, these 11 disciples, these were the same group of people, the same individuals that Jesus breathed on to receive the Holy Spirit. And now here they are, they go back, they listen, like he said to wait in Jerusalem. And so they go back to Jerusalem, they go into the upper room, and we find this incredible verse, don't overlook it, it says that the apostles were in one accord. Now, If you know anything about the crew of disciples that Jesus asked to follow him, you would know that they were a bunch of different personalities with a bunch of different kind of backgrounds. In fact, throughout the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we don't really see them being in one accord with one another. They're trying to compete with who's going to be the greatest. There's a lot of different things going on. But here, now, they're of one accord and praying together. I believe this is marked as an evidence of the Holy Spirit that they'd received. We know that one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit is what? Unity. In fact, we read it in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3. It says to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't have to create unity. The Spirit of God gives us unity and we just have to maintain and keep it. Here we see though for the first time. The 11 apostles with all their different baggage, they're of one accord and they are practicing prayer together. This is where the Spirit leads them in their waiting. It's to prayer. Because unlike the Old Testament saints that had to wait on the promise, they had to wait on the promise to be fulfilled. Now with the Spirit of God, yes, we wait on Jesus to fulfill promises, but we get to wait with him. Because he lives inside of us. Because his spirit indwells us. So not only are we waiting on, we're waiting with God and we wait with God in the posture of prayer. You could say it like this, that a waiting church is a praying church. That a spirit-led church is a praying church. That someone that is to be waiting on God is to be praying to him. Praying with him, spending time seeking him. This is the first thing that we see the Spirit leads them to do as they are practicing waiting. They're practicing prayer. The second is that they're seeking scripture. Let's continue our study in verse 15. It says this, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and we allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And everyone said, ew. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. 
Here we see that in their waiting, the Spirit leads them to seek Scripture. Peter stands up among the believers and he begins to quote from two different psalms. And in this moment, he's showing considerable wisdom and knowledge of the scriptures that we've never seen in Peter before. In fact, if you are a student of the word, you might want to mark, this is the first time we find Peter, who would become the leader of the church. This is the first time we see him uh, quoting scripture in the Bible. I mean, this guy was a, he fell out of rabbinical school. As a Jewish boy that grew up, I mean, he had to go to these rabbinical schools and he didn't make it. Like he was a fisherman, he was unlearned, he was untrained in the scriptures. Yet all of a sudden, he has this incredible insight to the most obscure Psalms. I mean, let me read it to you again. He begins to quote Psalm 69 verse 25 that says, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Now, you guys are, many of you, many of us, we're followers of Jesus, right? And dwell with the Holy Spirit, amen? And one of the roles of the indwelling of the, the, the Holy Spirit is to guide us into all truth that we may understand Scripture, right? If I read Psalm 69, verse 25, I would never think of Judas. Like, this is the most obscure verse. But here we can see that the Spirit of God was actually leading Peter because he's able to make these connections that only come by the understanding of Scripture through the demonstration of the Spirit. He's able to connect that this Scripture is actually prophesying regarding Judas. And then Luke gives this detailed account of Judas's death. And then Peter quotes Psalm 109 verse 8 and points out the need to appoint someone to take Judas's office as an apostle. Now notice this. This is so cool. Moments before Jesus' ascension, because we know that Luke 24 and Acts 1, they're parallel accounts. Moments before Jesus' ascension, in the same conversation where he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, the same conversation where he calls them to wait, we read this. Luke chapter 24, verse 44, be on the screen. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How cool. Like Jesus breathed on and received the Holy Spirit. He says all of it, like all of the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, it's all concerning Jesus. I love it. Whole different message. Jesus is the center of it all. And then he says that he opens up their minds to the scriptures. And we see that this is exactly what's happening to Peter. All of a sudden, he has this incredible insight into the scriptures. Why? Because Jesus opened up his mind by giving him the spirit. Okay, Tyler, what's what's the big point? Well, one, it's just cool Bible stuff. But the second thing is, the second thing is, is that if you're a follower of Jesus... You've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who is God. He dwells inside of you. His role is to guide you into all truth and to understand the scriptures. Waiting can be hard. But the beauty is that now, if and when Jesus calls us to wait, the Spirit of God lives inside of us. And as we wait, we can commune with Him as we're practicing prayer. As we wait, we can seek the Scriptures for wisdom and the Spirit will lead us in the understanding of the Scriptures. So if you're waiting, He'll give you wisdom. If you're waiting, He'll give you direction. This is who our God is. 
So they're waiting. It's not passive, it's active. They're praying, they're seeking scripture. And lastly, we see that they're considering counsel. Verses 21 to 22, let's read it together. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven disciples. So, Peter stands up among the believers. He makes this call. He's showing incredible wisdom. He's able to put these pieces together prophetically in Scripture. And he comes up with three basic qualifications for the apostle who would take Judas's role. Notice three qualifications. One, that they would be faithful to follow Jesus throughout the duration of his ministry. As Jesus was coming and he was going, as he went out and he was among us. Now, This right here was a pretty important qualification because as you know, Jesus said some pretty remarkable things during his ministry where a lot of people dipped out. Remember when Jesus said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and everyone left him? Well, one of the qualifications in order to be impossible was that you didn't, that you stuck around. The second then was that you've been around since the baptism of Jesus. You've been with Jesus through the duration of his ministry. The third qualification was that you were an eyewitness of the resurrection, which there were over 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. And out of those three qualifications, only two guys out of that 120 met the qualifications, Justice and Matthias. And so what do they do? They cast lots to discover who's it going to be. Now notice, Peter does not lean on his own understanding and say, man, Matthias is more qualified. He's a head taller than everyone else. He's got great leadership skills. No, they actually trust it into the Lord's hands. They were trying to follow scripture. Proverbs 16 verse 33 says that the the law is cast into the lap, lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Now, if you want to talk to me after service about Matthias, we can talk about it and stuff. But I believe here that he, Peter, is being spirit-led through all of this. We're seeing the evidence of the Holy Spirit who's been breathed into them all over the section. So what happens? They pick Matthias. Now, what's the point that we're drawing out this morning, though? We're asking ourselves, what does it look like to wait on the Lord? Well, it's not passive, it's active, our waiting Their waiting is a great model for us. It was practicing prayer, seeking scripture, and considering counsel. Now get this. This is actually interesting. That prior to this spirit-led waiting in here in Acts chapter 1, there actually is only one more case where there was spirit-led waiting. It's when Jesus was in the wilderness. He was baptized with the spirit. The spirit came upon him. And then we read these words that the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And into a time of waiting called temptation. Right? And what do we see? We actually see the same method of waiting. We see Jesus practicing prayer in the wilderness, praying and fasting. 
We see Jesus, it seems that he was, seeing, he was seeking scripture because the moment that Satan begins to tempt him, he begins quoting scripture and he begins quoting what actually is a similar area in scripture in the book of Deuteronomy. It's like quoting from here and then here and here, all in a similar portion of scripture. So he was meditating on and seeking scripture. And then rather than considering the counsel of Satan, he considered the counsel of his father. What's the point? The point isn't to create a legalistic guideline on how to wait. It's to create a helpful guideline. To say, in our waiting, our waiting is not to be passive, but to be active. What does it look like? It's to practice prayer. It's to seek scripture. It's to consider counsel. Now, this is the thing. I actually think that that, that, um, that flow is important. Because I don't know about you, but this is a case with teenagers and young adults, that when they are asked to wait, the first thing they do isn't prayer. The first thing they do is consider counsel. They call up, call up every friend, every leader, every pastor. Oh my gosh, like, I think he likes me. What do I do? Like, I gotta wait. <laughs> consider counsel. And then open up the Bible and play Bible roulette to try to find something in the Bible that confirms they cherry pick whichever counsel they want and say, oh, that's the one I like. And they try to find something in the scriptures to confirm. And then their prayer to God goes something like this. Like, hey, God, I know like you totally spoke between my friend Chelsea. And like, boom, like then I saw it in scripture. Thank you so much. Like, I'm going to go do this now. I don't even know a Chelsea, but um, listen, I don't know about you. I don't know if that's something all generation. I think we all struggle with that, though. Like, we don't like to wait, and so we try to find shortcuts around our waiting. But I think that this little method, this practice of waiting, is actually super, super helpful. The first voice in our waiting that's often difficult, that often involves suffering, that often involves impatience, the first voice shouldn't be the voice of someone else. It should be the voice of God that we listen to. Where does that happen? It happens in prayer. And as we then pray, then we open up God's word and he speaks back. It's been said, if you want God to turn a page in your life, you've got to t- turn a page in his book. If you're opening up his book, he speaks, he, he speaks through his word. And then, yeah, then confirm that counsel. Listen to God's counsel and confirm it. There's wisdom in a, in a multitude of counselors, sure. But man, our practice of waiting, it should be centered around Jesus. It should be led by the Holy Spirit. And we see them giving us a great example of this. And so we've zoomed out to look at the principle of waiting. That oftentimes, whether we like it or not, God calls us to wait. Okay? We got to get over it. He calls us to wait. But the beauty is, is that when he calls us to wait... We're waiting on him, and now because we're filled with the Spirit, we're waiting with him. And he's always faithful to answer and fulfill his promises. But we've looked at the principle of waiting. Then we zoomed in to see their practice of waiting. And now I want to zoom further in to look at the life of Peter to understand the power of waiting. Because this is the thing. We've answered the question, who are we waiting for? Who are we waiting on? We're waiting on Jesus. We're waiting on him. We're waiting on his fulfillment of his promises or whatever he's speaking in our life. We're waiting on him. What does the waiting look like? We've answered that, but we have not answered the question, why in the world do we have to wait? Why? It's so hard. It's so difficult. Why do we have to wait? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. Let's consider Peter. Let's zoom in on his life. Now, Peter gets a lot of talk in church for, like, how bold he got at Pentecost. He's like, Peter, denying Jesus, like, one day, and just, like, 
bold and just going for it the next day at Pentecost. But this is what I want you to notice. Before Peter led publicly at Pentecost, he led privately in the upper room. Before Peter took a stand before the crowd, he took a stand before his brothers. Before Peter could call the multitudes to repentance, he called the disciples to prayer. Before Peter quoted scripture publicly, he sought scripture privately. Why do we wait? Because in the waiting, God often prepares us privately before he empowers us publicly. We see this model all throughout scripture. Before Moses publicly led the Israelites, he was called away in obscurity privately being prepared. Before David became king, yes, he was anointed, but then he had to wait. He had some battles that he had to figure out. He had to grow up. He had to learn. He had to hear the voice of God. He had to learn. He was prepared privately. Then we even see Jesus, as we already mentioned before. Like Jesus waits 30 years and then he waits privately in the wilderness for 40 days just waiting. Then we even see the Apostle Paul. Like he has this dramatic conversion. It's like, woo! Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. This is epic. And he goes, he's like trying to tell people about Jesus. And they're like, dude, we don't trust you. Like you were just killing all of our friends, man. Go away. And he had to go away for 14 years. And he was being privately prepared. In fact, the book of Galatians, it seems to be that Paul was being personally taught by Jesus. Fourteen years later, he returns to Jerusalem and his public ministry starts. What's the point? The point is really simple. We see the model all throughout the Bible that God often privately prepares us before he publicly empowers us. Before they were to be publicly empowered in Acts chapter 2 and things were going to go. I mean, the movement was going to happen and it was going to be cataclysmic. It was going to change, did change. We're talking about it today because of Acts chapter 2. It changed the world. The church was born. But before Acts chapter 2, there's these 10 days of just waiting privately. There's something in the waiting where God prepares us from the inside out. I came across an excerpt of a story from a book titled, When the Heart Waits, where the author, she's a woman, she records a conversation she has with a monk. Let me read it to you. It goes like this. The woman said to the monk, I saw you today sitting beneath the tree, just sitting there so still. How is it that you can wait so patiently in the moment? I can't seem to get used to the idea of doing nothing. The monk broke into a powerful grin. Well, there's the problem right there, young lady. You bought into the cultural myth that when you're waiting, you're doing nothing. Then he took his hands and he placed them on my shoulders, peered straight into my eyes and said, I hope you'll hear what I'm about to tell you. When you're waiting, you're not doing nothing. You're doing the most important something there is. You're allowing your soul to grow up. If you can't be still and wait, you can't become what God created you to be. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Why? Because we see it throughout Scripture. Listen, we talk a lot in church, and we're all about it. We're all about being on mission for Jesus. We're all about preaching the gospel and making disciples and serving in different capacities in the church. But the reality is, is sometimes our focus can be so outward, it can be so missional, that we neglect where it all comes from. 
you're like, man, I'm trying to do it, but it just seems so weak, like nothing's really happening. Well, the question is, is that empowerment comes from a place of private devotion. We weren't just saved to build the kingdom for God. God can do it without us. We were saved so that we'd be drawing near to him, that we would know him, that he would know us. You know, that's our mission statement at Calvary Vista, to know God and make him known. Before we make him known, we have to know him. How do we know him? Not just intellectually, experientially, as we privately wait on him. That's where the power comes from. So in the waiting, God's preparing you. God's growing us up. Waiting is actually an invitation to experience the living God. It's not because he's forgotten you. It's not because he's so slow in fulfilling everything. It's because he, he wants us to know him. And he wants to know us. He wants to prepare us. He wants to mold us. He wants to shape us. See, but this is the problem. We live in what I like to call the age of shortcut spirituality. It goes like this. We want salvation without surrender. We want revival without repentance. We want healing without the healer. We want power without prayer. We want the resurrected life without the crucified life. We want the public platform without private devotion. But there's no shortcut to it. There's no shortcut to any of it. Because that's actually not what it's completely about. What it's about is getting privately alone to know the living God and to be known by him. That's what it's about. And all of those things are then an overflow. The mission, the reason which God's created you is is to know him and then to live for him. But it's first to know him privately. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 6 verse 4. He begins to talk about this private place, this secret place. He says, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he repeats, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The public empowerment to live for Jesus, it is all an overflow from the private life with him. You could say it like this and in closing. Why do we wait? We wait because God, in the waiting, God will do a work in us before he does a work through us. While Moses was privately being prepared for 40 years, God was doing a work in him. David, God was doing a work in him. Paul, God was doing a work in him. Yeah, God wants to use you. God wants to use me. But first, he wants to work in us. That's why we wait. Closing, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And maybe you're weary of waiting. Maybe you just need that simple reminder that waiting is an invitation to privately know God and to be known by him. You know the verse, it's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 35. There's a promise to those who wait for the Lord. It says that those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
God will renew you. He will renew me in the waiting. Why? Because in the waiting, we meet with him. In the waiting, we experience him. In the waiting, he grows us to be more like him. Friends, do not neglect the waiting on the waiting with Jesus. Now, this is the beautiful thing. Way before we ever waited on God, God waited on us. While we had our backs turned to God, while we were living our life full of sin and shame and doing our own thing and building our own kingdom, God was waiting for us. Just as the father in Luke 15 was waiting for the prodigal son to return, we see there that he was waiting with anticipation for his son to return. Oh, God was waiting on us to return, to look to him. And now he invites us to wait on him that we might know him deeply and intimately. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you did wait on us. That you weren't impatient with us. That you didn't bring fire down from heaven when our backs were turned toward you. But that you patiently waited upon us. That you would rescue us that you would change us, that you would transform us. Father, I pray that you would teach us to wait, that we wouldn't try to take shortcuts, that we wouldn't neglect the private place of prayer and waiting on you. Father, teach us what that looks like. I know it can be scary to some. How do I find time to do that? What does that even look like? Lord, would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to seek scripture, to learn your voice, And God, would we never neglect it? Would everything we do for you be an overflow of what you have done in us? Jesus, I thank you that you're working. I thank you that you're moving. I pray for those in this room that may not know you personally, that you're waiting on right now to turn to you. God, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would grab a hold of their heart, that you would draw them to you, that they would turn that they would repent and believe on you and that they would begin that abundant life in which you promised them. God, I pray that they would do that today. God, I pray for those that have gone, grown weary and waiting. They're frustrated. They feel like they've been forgotten by you. God, I pray that they would be reminded that you love them, that you're there. I pray that you would invite them into that private place that you might reveal yourself to them in a more profound way. And Jesus, I pray that out of the overflow of our private devotion to you, that you would bring revival through us. That you would move in this church, in this city, in this county. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.